Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host, Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. How are you doing? That's me. (laughs) I'm okay. I've just had the very bad cold that everyone has had. And actually, it's still a bit with me. And so I'm sorry if I sound a bit downbeat. It's been absolutely horrible. I mean, really horrible. I left the house today for the first time in like four and a half days, which is just always such a weird feeling. But I will tell you why I left the house. And that was to go and buy some mince pies so that we could have a mince pie for this uh, Christmas recording session. <laughs> yeah. And I have a mince pie too. Um, there we wow, go. you left the house to buy a mince pie kind of for me. That's so nice. I did. <laughs> I went, left the house to buy a mince pie so that we could eat disgustingly loudly on uh-huh. on record like for our listeners and <laughs> my worst actually, nightmare well exactly everyone you need to know about Carrie if you don't already know that she has something called misophonia <laughs> well I don't like to self-define as being misophonic because I think that <laughs> I don't think it's like to the level of a pathology and I and I slightly I think a lot of people love to have a condition when it's like they don't quite have it you know Mm-hmm. But anyway, we haven't described what it is. I, I basically get very annoyed by certain sounds, particularly eating noises. They drive yeah. me crazy. I think, I mean, listen, I don't think it has to be pathology levels to play a significant role in your life. So basically, I went out to buy mince pies to troll you <laughs> <laughs> for Christmas. That's my Christmas <laughs> gift to you. No, I would not want to eat them on the radio, but we wanted to bring a sense of festivity to this recording session, especially because the news is shit and we really don't want it to be so shit, but it is shit. It is really shit um, and it's getting shitter and I'm I'm like at the point where I'm like, should I just ignore the news? I don't know. I don't know. Um, We haven't even announced what show we're doing, so we should probably do that. But (laughs) I listened to the show that you're just about to find out what this is. Um, (laughs) And and it was kind of sad how hopeful we were about 2021. And, you know, there have been ups, but there have been downs um, this year, haven't there? But anyway, having a mince pie, bought a tree, hopefully going back to America to see my family. So I'm okay. Yeah. Fingers crossed for that. Those open borders, baby. And I'm just really thrilled to be here with you eating mince pies because this is one of our favorite shows of the year, isn't it? It is indeed. And that, my darling, was a great segue. So (laughs) this is our last literary friction of 2021. And as usual, we're making this our year in review show where we're going to look back over some of our favorite reads from the last year, from 2021, gently and with compassion, revisit our 2020 reading resolutions see if we stuck to anything and give some resolutions (laughs) for the year ahead. And also on top of all that, we're going to discuss some of the books we want to read in 2022. Yes, we will be giving you a good old list of books today. So if you need some inspiration for what books to buy people for Christmas, maybe you're going to see Uncle Joe this year if you missed him last year. (laughs) Whatever holiday you'll be celebrating, we're talking about Christmas a lot today, which was very alien to me when I first moved to this country because we always say the holidays. But when please substitute Christmas for holidays, whatever your preferred holiday is. Mm -hmm. And in whatever fashion, you know, if you choose not to celebrate, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, you're welcome to join me in the Bar Humbug Grinch Club. That's where I live. (laughs) Yeah, um, enjoy that. I will be not there. Um, But but please (laughs) listen closely. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Listen, I honestly, it's been like one of the efforts of my life to crawl out of the Bar Humbug Grinch Club. But unfortunately, terrible things just keep happening to me in December and January. <laughs> oh, darling. I know. I think it's just, I'm just going to accept it. It's just the armpit of the year for me. And that's how it is. Also, here's your annual reminder to support your local independent bookshop or head over to our bookshop.org page where we will be posting a list of all the books we discussed today. That's right. And you can find lists of all the books we've had on the show all year, all of our recommendations. Please buy them all. They're amazing books. Also, if you like, you can support us as well by subscribing at patreon.com forward slash litfriction and becoming a patron. You will get access to an extra minisode each month, have the chance to suggest themes and also just generally support us in the work that we do here. In our Patreon episode this month, we're going to be talking about our favorite Christmas books. So if you want to know what gets us in the holiday spirit, 
or not, as the case may be, <laughs> then please sign up. I think that is all the business out of the way, isn't it, darling? Should we talk about some books? Let's talk about some books. Right. In our first segment today, we're going to talk about our favorite books that we read in 2021. As usual, our list will be mostly books that were published in 2021, but we're not going to limit it just to that. It's also just a selection of the books that I read, which is not exhaustive by any means. And I I, I suspect that that's the case for you too, because it's been an interesting year for reading for me. I don't know about you. Uh Uh-huh. (laughs) Uh-huh. And as I said, it was very interesting to listen to our show from last year, from December 2020, because we both assumed that we were done doing lockdowns at that point, Um, which is amazing because we spent most of 2021, especially the first half of the year, in a lockdown. And we're, you know, heading in some sort of direction like that now. And I have to say, like, the lockdown of 2021 for me was definitely my darkest point of the depression, and it really affected my reading. Nothing interested me. And I think I started about, I, and I'm not even exaggerating, about 10 books that I didn't read. And I think they're probably good books, but I just could not get excited about reading for a long time. And thankfully, that changed a bit, but it, it really affected the list of books that I read this year. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, my year was very much defined by grief. So I find it quite hard to think back because it brings it very close. And we're sort of approaching the anniversary of my dad's death. And it's just, I don't know, it's a strange one. It's a really strange one for me. I I feel like I can't see the year clearly in any way. And in some ways, if you ask me what I read, I'd tell you I had no idea, which was why actually it was really nice to get this list of books together for this session, because there are so many brilliant books that I managed to read in spite of being in a weird place myself. And they, I think, will probably always feel especially vivid because sometimes when books cross your path, when things are very difficult or dark, they do, they kind of inscribe themselves into your narrative of that time in a way. Mm. And I had that in 2020. I mean, it has been an extraordinarily rough couple of years. And it was funny listening back to the show from this time last year, I was caring for my mum and she's still not well. So I'm kind of in in this miasma still of um of caring for other people and sort of a lot of challenging stuff. It's strange. But I at the opening of that old show, I told you how excited I was about the vaccine. And I just want to say I am still excited about the <laughs> vaccine. And I am chomping at the bit to get my booster. And I just I do think it's something that's worth still shouting about. What an extraordinary thing it is and how it has enabled us to have much more of a semblance of normality than we could have done otherwise. I mean, really, like I did a couple of live events, which I didn't think was going to be possible when we went into that first lockdown of the year. So there was some positive reality in the mix and to do with reading and to do with the the literary community. And I I went into bookshops again, like all of that. (laughs) And I was thinking, actually, I mean, we'll talk about this a bit later, but when you ask about like, what was your reading year like? A big part of my reading life is normally going into bookshops and browsing and having my attention piqued by a recommendation from a bookseller or literally what a book looks like on the shelf or what it's next to. And I have missed that in my life. My God, I've missed it. And I don't really have it now because I'm having to be extremely careful because of looking after my mum again. But the times that I spent in bookshops over the last year, the rare moments were so special to me. Really, really special. I was actually in foils yesterday and oh baby, did I go a little crazy. Mm. And it felt so good. I bought a lot of books for my family and it's my favorite thing in the world. And and it, it, it is about discovery. You know, of course, I know a lot about the books that are being published right now because I work in the industry and I follow those things. But just to see things laid out 
on tables next to each other and pick up things I haven't heard of yet and look at the physical objects of books and think about how they've been laid out in the in the shop and see the care with which the people working there have kind of thought about curating an experience for me so that I can discover books. It's wonderful. So yeah, yeah long live bookshops. And libraries. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and libraries. But anyway, let's get into the books yeah, yeah. from this last year that we've really loved. What's your first one? Well, my first one is one that I have you to thank for. So, yeah. I'm also, I know what it is. And I'm like quite jealous <laughs> that you're getting to shout it out yes. because I also loved it. This can be a joint recommendation, yeah. but it's Diary of a Film by Niven Govindan which was published last year. We also had Niven on the show. So if you didn't listen to that and my recommendation makes you curious, please go listen. We had a fascinating conversation. So you actually recommended Niven's novel, This Brutal House, in our Year in Review show last year. And you were the one who suggested we have him on the podcast. And I am just so glad you did because Diary of a Film actually came to me. And I think I said this to you at the time, during that moment when I was really, really struggling to read. And it felt like a palate cleanser. Mm. It's a slim novel. It's a slim story. It's narrated by a, an Eastern European film director, a kind of auteur director, indie, who is in Italy for the premiere of his new film and simultaneously kind of searching around for a new project in the way that an artist does. And he meets this woman and kind of becomes fascinated by her. He finds out she's a writer and decides that he wants to take on her work, but she's very skeptical about this. So it becomes this beautiful meditation on, on the process of artistic creation and, and really the ethics of storytelling. And <laughs> we talked a little bit to Niven about this. It's a, it's a novel that takes itself incredibly seriously. And I actually loved that. I loved how important Niven saw not only this story, but how elevated he made this process. And I was actually talking to my friend who's a filmmaker. She really loved it. And she said it was like absolutely uncanny how he was able to capture these moments in filmmaking, you know, especially at the end of a film when it's coming together and you're right on the cusp of learning whether people will like it or not and kind of still trying to hold on to the the cast and the kind of experience of making a film, but also having to let it go. And talking to her about it reminded me that one of the things that good fiction can do is crystallize experience in a way that is both kind of intimately recognizable as it was to her, but also totally new. And yeah, I just think he's a genius. So I can't wait to read his other work and I can't wait to read what he writes next. I know, he's amazing. Also interesting story about that book. I sent my aunt, who's also works in filmmaking, a copy of it. She lives in Australia. I posted it to her the minute it was published and it recently was returned to me by the postal service, unopened, <laughs> undelivered. <laughs> so this copy of Niven's book has gone all the way around the world and all the way back again, oh, basically. No. <laughs> <laughs> and it's about to go out to go all the way around again. So it might get to her in time for the new year. Um, because I know she'll love it for the same reasons that you just described your filmmaker friend loving it, because it is so real about that stuff. It is an amazing book. Please, everyone know that my endorsement of it is just as hearty as Carrie's. Get it. <laughs> Give it to everyone you know who just needs a lift, a lift out of the banality of life into a place where art is meaningful and pleasure is real and love and, is real. And Italy is Italy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Get me there now. <laughs> <laughs> What's your first recommendation? Mine is um, another book set in Europe, actually. This is uh, set in the south of France. It's a novel called Paul by Daisy Lafarge, which was published this year. And um, yeah, so much about this novel has just stayed with me. And I think when I was reading it, I, I, I was very enthusiastic about it. I loved it. I didn't necessarily know it was going to stay with me in the way that it has. But my God, it has. Just the atmosphere, the location, the feeling of unease that she creates with her language and, and the beauty of the language made such a big impression on me. I think partly because I was really pleased to read something where the writing style was, I guess, I don't know, inc incredibly carefully crafted to work alongside and also actually sometimes against the story. Obviously, all writers, regardless of the style they're writing in, think carefully about the words and the language. But 
Daisy has also written poetry, and I feel like her relationship to language is a poet's relationship. Mm. I don't mean to pin it down so much, but there is just something different about the way she writes than a lot of other novelists out there. It's full of details about the landscape, but also about the emotional experience of the narrator that stand out specifically for the way they're expressed. You know, there's a real interest in imagery that I think poets often have a sensibility for and the the kind of detail of language and what you can create by unusual juxtapositions of adjectives, that kind of thing. So it's very evocative. It feels like I don't know, a, a particularly immersive voice, I think. And the plot is also great. It's not to diminish the plot, but there's something about the the language and the voice that I found especially powerful. Mm. So the story is about a 20-year-old woman called Frances. She's the narrator. And she spends a summer helping out at an eco-farm in the south of France, which is owned by this enigmatic older guy named Paul, who is an amateur anthropologist with a special interest in Tahiti and the Pacific Islands. Frances and Paul get into this complicated relationship of shifting power dynamics. And it's a very sensitively drawn picture of that time in, in life where you're young, but you're also an adult and Mm. you are trying to figure out how to relate to the version of yourself that the world responds to. And I think in this book specifically, the expectation of young women to be always amenable and likable and to say yes to things. But yeah, it's it's a fantastic book. And I would say a good one to read in the depths of winter because of the picture it paints of the Maritime Alps in summer, which is just intoxicating, you know? Yeah. So is it contemporary? In terms of the setting? It's sort of, uh, yes, I guess so. I, it, it, when when it's set, is less important, I would say. Interesting, okay. Just in the way it's written. Um, I guess it reminded me a little bit of Sarah Perry's first book in that way. Yeah, sort of out of time. Yeah, kind of, because you're just, the temporality of what's going on isn't really what is important in the story, you know? Like the dynamics it's describing are as old as the hills and the landscape itself is timeless. I don't know if that was Daisy's intention when she was writing it. It would be interesting to know, actually. But that was definitely what I took from it. Lovely. Oh, that does sound right up my alley. So yeah, I think you'd it. really love it. I really do. I read it pretty much in one setting, almost. I just, I did have to go to sleep for a while. But <laughs> if I'd started it earlier in the day, I would have read it in one go. Brilliant. What's your next one? Well, my next one is the lone nonfiction representative on my list. And I I have to say this basically because I didn't read that much nonfiction for fun last year, which I'm sort of embarrassed by. I think I just, I was looking for comfort and often it's novels that I turn to when I'm feeling unadventurous in my reading, even though I do that for work. But what a brilliant revelatory nonfiction reading experience it was. The book is The Transgender Issue by Sean Fay, which was published in 2021, another author that we featured on the show. And it is really possibly the book that I found myself bringing up in conversation more than any other after I had read it, because it gave me a framework for talking about things, particularly trans rights in the UK that I knew a little bit about, but that Sean gave me the tools to understand fully. And I'm just so grateful for that. And yeah, what Sean does that is so great is that she completely reframes the debate around trans quote unquote issues, showing that we're having the wrong conversation. It's not about bathrooms. It's not about teens and gender reassignment surgery. It is indisputably how difficult it is for trans people in the UK to get proper health care, just how much discrimination they face, and how and why the liberation of trans people is necessary for a just society. And she does this very convincingly. Her perspective and her insights are especially invaluable, I think, in the even more toxically transphobic environment that we're facing in the UK right now. So if you're at all curious about this, if you want to understand these issues, if if you want a really clear perspective on it, I would really point you in the direction of the transgender issue by Sean Fay. You won't regret picking it up. 100%. And also if you want some help in navigating the tricky conversations that come up when families get together. Yes. Um, you know, this is a really great one to put in Uncle Joe's stocking. Yes. So that <laughs> he can Joe. be educated. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uncle Joe needs to read the transgender issue. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what is your next recommendation? My next one is Detransition Baby by Tori Peters, which was also published this year. And um, one of my honorable mentions, actually. Is it? Yeah, oh, brilliant. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah, it's a cracking novel. And I, I don't know, just it came up immediately when I was thinking about what books had really stuck with me from this year partly also because of when it came to me. And so I was listening to the audiobook when I was caring for my mother immediately after her heart surgery, which she had in the spring. And so it's always going to be bound up with the memory of me staying at her house, trying to make a lemon tart in her kitchen while she was upstairs in bed because I was very stressed and I was trying to stress cook something complicated because I was like, I know if I do something that's going to take like a couple of hours, it will kill some time and I'll bring her a nice tart. The tart did not come out so well, I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> but I needed something to lift my spirits and the tart did its work, but this is the thing that really lifted my spirits in that time of uh, just a lot of anxiety because it managed to be both gossipy, but also clever. And I think I wanted something that wasn't going to be like hugely taxing of me as a reader or a listener. Also wasn't going to insult my intelligence. <laughs> and mm -hmm. um, this book hit the nail on the head for that because it hooks you in with the relationship drama, but then it says incredibly smart things about normativity and motherhood and love and self-knowledge and forgiveness, actually. So the plot follows the relationship between Reese, who's a trans woman, and her ex-partner Ames, who identifies as male, but who lived as a trans woman for a while before they detransitioned. And then his girlfriend, Katrina, who is a cis woman and who is also pregnant with his baby. So the three of them are trying to navigate this uncertain circumstance, basically. And it's really funny, but it's really thoughtful. And it contains some incredibly true observations, I think, about the way, I guess the various ways, actually, that gender can be a prison for everybody, male, female, or non-binary. And also how important it is not to just accept the status quo about relationships. Again, regardless of your identity or your sexual orientation, I guess freedom lies in making your own choices and you can really figure those out if you deconstruct the social expectations that exist around your identity. Mm. Um, and that's what the book left me with, just this kind of rallying call to think harder and realize that you can make choices for yourself that maybe go against the grain, or maybe the choice that you're making is that you do swim in the same direction as all the other fish and that's okay too, you know, like it, it's very, it's very compassionate about those choices, I think. And also just a really fun read, which is, I think, a careful balance to achieve, you know? Totally. Yeah, it's it's very funny, which <laughs> was such a relief. And I, re I read the audiobook as well, and I really enjoyed how it was read. Although the my only complaint was that I didn't realize it was the ending and then it was over. And I was like, oh, that was the last sentence. Like I should have <laughs> yeah. seen like they needed to do something with that production. But otherwise, very good. What's your next one? Uh, my next one is Piranesi. Oh, yes. Park, which was published actually I thought it was published in 2021 but it was actually published in 2020 I think in autumn 2020 this is a book I listened to on audio as well and I also recommended it recently on our Ruth Aseki show so I will not go on for too long about it not least because it also won the women's prize so a lot of people have talked about this book but it really did feel like one of the freshest books that I read in 2021 it is about a man who is called Piranesi. He lives in this large house, kind of an endless house of many rooms and filled with statues, surrounded by the sea. It gets flooded regularly by its tides. It's this really strange world that we enter with him. And the only other person he knows is this man who appears regularly that he calls the other. And for Piranesi, this is the world. The only other person living in the world is the other. And the house is the whole world. But odd things start happening. And he begins to question who he is and where he is. And that is a, a cracking plot. And you will not be disappointed by the mystery of the novel. But what really elevates this, I think, is just the imaginative landscape of it. It feels fresh, as I said. It feels, it made me think, isn't it amazing that people like Susanna Clark exist in the world who can come up with this idea and this world? And I loved living inside her mind for the duration of this novel. And 
came out of it just so, so glad that she's a writer. So I'd really recommend it. And as I said before, in my other recommendation, I would really recommend listening to the audiobook because it's narrated beautifully by Chiwetel Ejiofor, wonderful reader, really kind of understands the rhythm and the majesty and the pacing of the novel as well. I second that. I listened to it on your recommendation and it blew me away. It was just what I needed. It's actually, I feel like it's kind of a perfect Christmas read Mm. because it's transporting and very self-contained. And I think it'd be a wonderful thing to read by the fire after a big cold walk. Yeah. There's something wintry about it, which is funny because nothing is wintry in the book, but yeah, it's like Narnia-esque. Yeah. The fantasy of it is, is, you know, the magic of Christmas seeps into that perhaps. Maybe. It's something about, also, it's just so satisfying. I found it such a satisfying read. It was everything I wanted it to be. So thank you for the recommendation. It makes me so happy when you listen to my recommendations. (laughs) (laughs) And then actually like the books. I was going to say, I listen to them quite a lot, actually. Yeah, you do. You do. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's so interesting because we have such different tastes, but we very rarely disagree about books. Have you noticed that? Yeah. No, it's true. Makes me happy. Anyway, what's what's your next recommendation? (laughs) Well, this was also my recommendation on our most recent show with Ruth Ezeki, so I'm going to keep it light and tight. This is a memoir by Maggie Nelson called The Red Parts, which was published in 2007. And um, I listened to an audiobook first, and then I bought the text so I could read it with my eyes as well, because I really... I needed to get inside it deeper. <laughs> mm. um, but it's just, oh my God, such a fantastic book. It's essentially about the experience of the trial that takes place for her aunt's murder, but 35 years after the event and the toll that this experience takes on her and her family. But because it's Maggie Nelson, it's also about the meaning of justice and the moral implications of incarceration and capital punishment, the philosophical question of what does a society do with the people who transgress its most essential taboos like murder? She gets into the heavily gendered ideas that underpin what makes a good or a bad victim in the eyes of the law. She also gets into the creepy, grotesque desire we have as a culture to see and read about women victims and complex kind of sexually motivated crimes and all of that. But I just, the thing I find so phenomenal always about her writing is how seamlessly she weaves big questions in and through her lived experience. And she's just a writer whose work very elegantly places critical thinking alongside daily life in a way that is so clear and so considered and never feels shoehorned because I think actually they are not separate practices for her. I think she is a human being whose life and way of living is so imbued by her critical thinking that it's very natural. I'm sure that doesn't, I don't mean to um, diminish the incredible skill of doing that in writing, but even, I mean, we interviewed her this year about a different book, which was much more kind of academic called On Freedom. And talking to her, it's just so clear, she's not, she doesn't separate these modes of being in the world, um, which I find so admirable. And I, and the other thing about this particular book is I think it's such a brilliant example of what memoir can do and how memoir is the telling of a particular story from a life, not the narration of a whole life. It doesn't try to encapsulate a person's whole life or whole identity. And it just shows you that there's the power that you can find in, in snippets and vignettes to give, I guess, the essence of what a very specific thing was like for a very specific person. Mm. I need to read it. It sounds so good. Yeah, it's really great. Perhaps not really a Christmas book. <laughs> <laughs> I don't but know. I would I, recommend it. As our patrons will find out, I don't I don't particularly have a kind of Christmas book. So, you know, lay it on me. Yeah. All right. You'll get it in your stocking along with the coal <laughs> that you <laughs> deserve. <laughs> You're getting cold in your stocking this year because you've not been a good girl, Carrie Plitt. What? I, where is this coming from? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You said to be peppy. I'm trying to be peppy. Am <laughs> being mean about my uh, moral compass? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I take it back. It's, your stocking is full of mince pies Thank and clementines and books by Maggie Nelson. Thank you. I'm happy with that. I, I can't <laughs> say clementines and mince pies are like what I would choose if I had a choice, but I'll take it. <laughs> You're getting sassy with Santa. <laughs> totally. 
<laughs> okay, what's your last recommendation from the year? My last recommendation from the year is The Interestings by Meg Wallitzer, which was a novel that was published in 2013. And I have actually recommended this book to more people than any other one this year, which I think is a sign. I also read it at the beginning of the year, which helps, but I, I, <laughs> I've told so many people to read this book and so many people have come back and loved it. And so I wanted to tell even more people to read this book. I have already recommended it on the show, but I'm so happy to be talking about it again. Yeah. I read it in the midst of lockdown in January and it was the one book that just completely transported me during that time. If you love big, sweeping, realist novels with a cast of characters that you get to know and you care about and you want to know what happens to them in their lives and you want to understand their internal lives, then I honestly cannot recommend this novel more. It is about a group of friends who meet at a performing arts summer camp in Northeastern America in the 1970s. You love a performing arts novel. I do, I do. It it ticks all my boxes. It really does. (laughs) I also love like big, like, America novels, which this is as well. You know, it's very much about changing America and growing up and it satisfies so many itches that I have in my, in my reading pleasure life drawer. <laughs> what? <laughs> Dude, itches in a drawer? What's happening? You can okay, have well, itches I, in a drawer if that's where you want to keep your itches. You can keep them in a drawer. <laughs> I am not a novelist, as you can probably tell, but I, but I love this novel. Um, which follows them through the rest of their lives after they're at this camp together. And one of the friends basically becomes an incredibly successful. He creates this show that's not the Simpsons, but it is kind of like he's an animator and he, he creates this incredibly popular worldwide phenomenon. And we see how his life changes and how the lives of others around him change. And so it, it kind of becomes a, a novel also about friendship and success and what we make of a life and, and what is meaningful. And um, it's a deeply and truly observed character study of all of these characters. I, I wanted to return to the book. I wanted to know what would happen to them. I was desperate to understand them. I still think about some of the scenes in, in the novel to this day. I was thinking about one yesterday, actually, and I cried at the end. So... I don't know. It's like, yeah, I I guess if if you're not into this kind of thing, you wouldn't like it. But if any of that sounded intriguing, I, I urge you to go read The Interestings. I am going to download the audiobook right now because actually it sounds like just the kind of thing I'm looking for to accompany me on big walks over the holiday period. I think you would really enjoy that. Yeah, it's a totally, it's an immersive story that I can see just being wonderful for tra- traipsing through the woods. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or the streets of London, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take it to the Heath. I'll take it to the Heath. Okay. Yeah, those are the ones. <laughs> oh, I really hope you like it. But if you don't, it's okay. I, I know sometimes we differ on these on these kinds of books. It is about mundane life sometimes, I'm afraid. Listen, I have spent a lot of time staring mundanity in the face over the last <laughs> couple of years, and perhaps I am changing my attitude towards it. Oh, slightly. interesting. Okay. You could call it okay. maturity, but let's not. I'm very proud of you, and I will not be smug about that. So um, <laughs> <laughs> tell me about your last recommendation. My my last one is um, actually from another author who we had on the list last year, which is Mary Gateskill. And it's the book Oppositions, which is a collection of essays, which was actually first published as um, Somebody with a Little Hammer in 2017, I think in the States. And it is a collection of essays over 30 years of her writing career. So it's very varied in terms of what the subject matters are and when they were written. And they take in everything from a trip to Russia to her thoughts on Nabokov's Lolita to a particular song by the Talking Heads that became very meaningful to her. There's some reviews in there, but they are just Honestly, regardless of your opinions, I think, and regardless of whether you agree with Gateskill, her writing is just good for your brain. I don't think that's an exaggeration. I think there's something about how she figures out how to think for herself in her essays that is so instructive to anyone else, especially if you find yourself captivated by groupthink or mindlessly kind of leaning towards what the consensus is, because she is 
analytical always. She is an expert in thinking against the grain, but never without heart and humanity. So I think even if you don't arrive at the same conclusion as her, you can always have respect for how she got where she gets. And I think that's such a skill. I think not many writers manage it actually. She's generous with herself and she's generous with others in a way that's pretty special and not at all sappy or kind of, um, she never gets there through the complicated, I would say, mantle of like self-care, you know, Mm. she's really not that generation at all. And I don't know, it's, I find reading her work is always refreshing. It always gives me a bit of a wake up. And in this collection, there are a couple of essays in which she revisits her previous work and or the, the first printing of them and elaborates on the story or criticizes her thinking or develops it slightly, which I think is so fascinating because it really shows you what the form of the essay allows a writer to do and how it can contain a particular experience or a particular event or perspective in a way that makes a point. But the point might shift if you were given more information outside of the frame, um, which she does in one in a really, really powerful way in, in an essay that's a discussion of rape and victim blaming and kind of new understandings of sexual mores. And I don't know, she's so skilled. She really is so skilled. So yeah, it's published by Serpent's Tale and it's a great read. Brilliant. Oh, I can't wait to read that. I, I'm a Gateskill fan and I'm so glad she's having a bit of a renaissance in the UK right now, I think. Well, you know, she is so surprised by it. I mean, I had the like incredible pleasure of interviewing her about this book um, for for the LRB. They're going to put it out on a podcast actually, so keep your eyes out if you are interested in listening. But she she started when we were warming up in the green room. She was, just, I mean, it was a virtual green room, but she was like, I'm just genuinely quite surprised that anyone wants to know what I think about anything. <laughs> she was like, I'm an old lady. <laughs> I don't really get it, but I'm thrilled, you know, and okay. we had such an interesting conversation. Yeah. She's a really, she's a really unique person. I'm a fan also. Good. Oh, great. Well, what a, what a list, you know, I'm proud of that list of books. I I think if anyone was given just those books to read over the last year, I'd, I'd feel happy for them. Yeah, definitely. They should all be on your Christmas lists, everybody. But before we get on to our resolutions, our reading resolutions, what are your honorable mentions? Because I know we had a few other books we wanted to sneak into the list, didn't we? <laughs> Always. It's too hard. Even on a year of weird reading, it's too hard. Um, <laughs> okay, very quickly. So my top one is Milk Fed by Melissa Broder, which is, in a nutshell, a sexy book about food and compulsion. <laughs> written in Broder's very specific voice. Next is Simple Passion by Annie Arnaud, translated by Tanya Leslie. Annie was on our list last year. I think you recommended The Years. And this is an analytical vignette about an intense affair that Arnaud had with a married man, but it's also about her passion for writing and the role of morality in reading, writing, and also loving and fucking. So it's great. I would recommend it. Mm. It's also very short, which is nice. And then my last one is a big, a big long book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts by Gabor Mate, which is a nonfiction book about addiction. And it's so brilliant. It takes a panoramic view of the way that addiction shows up everywhere. So it's got case studies of addicts on the front line of extremely devastating drug problems to uh, much less intense versions of addiction that show up in the way that loads of people fix on work or shopping or more supposedly innocuous or acceptable behaviors. But the fact that actually it can have a very negative effect on people's lives. Um, Amate is a doctor who works with addicts. His perspective is so humane. He offers a lot of himself in the book as well. And um, it reminds me actually a bit of my old favorite, Oliver Sacks. Mm. So if you're interested in addiction, I would strongly, strongly recommend it. And it's a great one for dipping in and out of. You don't have to read it cover to cover. Sounds great. Mm, I think you'd, you'd dig it actually. Very interesting. It definitely leaves you thinking differently about the question of what addiction is, which I think is very important because there's still a lot of negative moral judgment about addiction that we could do with getting rid of, I would say. I mean, I would say this as a recovering person, but I honestly don't take it just from me. (laughs) I also agree. Yay. (laughs) What are your honorable mentions? Okay. So Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro, um, which I've talked a couple of times already, but this is a very beautiful book about humanity as told by a robot. And if you like Ishiguro, you're going to love this book. 
4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman, which I'm reading right now. Oh my God, you have a self-help book on your honorable mentions. I I am so proud of you. I'm growing. I'm growing, (laughs) Octavia. The older I get, the less snobbish I get about self-help. And I would say this is kind of self-help, but it's also like it's on the philosophical side of self-help. It's not as prescriptive as it is kind of thinking through this idea that we only have 4,000 weeks to live, most of us, on average. And what do we do with our time? And it's a kind of anti-time management book. It's more about letting go of trying to manage time and finding the things that are meaningful to us in our life. And it's great. It's really good. I get his newsletter and I can't wait to read that book because I love his newsletter. I think you would really like this. It's great. It's changing my perspective in a really helpful way, I think. And then O. William by Elizabeth Strout, which I really think is one of her best books. It's this deeply humane novel about reconnecting with our past selves and the people from our past. And the choices we've made in life. And every other page has a sentence that just knocks you back. So I was so glad to read this book. I enjoyed it a lot. However, I would say I listened to the audiobook and I found the way it was read quite irritating. And I wish I had read it with my eyes rather than my ears. Interesting. But maybe you find her a little irritating. I understand. I do find her a little irritating. (laughs) I also think she is a really great writer of humanity. And I would agree with what you said about what the book does. But yeah, I, I actually didn't love it as much as Olive Kittredge. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, excellent. (laughs) Honorably mentioned. Very good. (laughs) Okay, so we'll be back in a bit to talk about our our resolutions, to to gently um, reflect. Also, in this break, I would like you all to know, and you, Carrie, I'm going to eat my mince pie. Mm. is sponsored by Picador. In keeping with the theme of this month's Year in Review episode, we thought we'd take the time to look back on our favorite Picador books of 2021. Octavia, do you want to start with your pick? I do. And I'm so excited to talk about this book because I have banged on about it a lot. I've also recommended it on the show before. It's called Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty by Patrick Radden Keefe. So you may have seen the Sackler name adorning art institutions all over the world, from the British Museum and the National Gallery here in London to the Met and the Louvre. The Sackler name is synonymous with inordinate wealth, influence and philanthropy. But the source of their fortune is vague. How did one of the richest families in the world actually make their money? Empire of Pain by Patrick Radenkeefe follows three generations of the Sackler family, tracing their roles in the making and marketing of OxyContin, the blockbuster painkiller that was a catalyst for the opioid crisis, which killed more Americans than all the wars since World War II, which is an absolutely mind-blowing statistic. The story that unfolds is shocking. It's one of greed, exploitation, and the dark attempts made by those corrupted by power to play the system. The Observer called it a chilling and mesmerizing read and described it as having the dramatic scope and moral power of a Victorian novel, which I would 100% agree with. Winner of this year's Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction, judges called it a future classic, superbly written, exhaustively researched, and full of fierce moral resolve. If you're looking for a page-turning counterpart to HBO's Succession, then Empire of Pain is definitely one to add to your Christmas list. So mine is Luster by Raven Lalani. Listeners of the show will already know how much we both love this book, but I just couldn't talk about my favorite books of the year without mentioning it. So Luster tells the story of 23-year-old Edie, who's just trying to survive, working a dead-end admin job, sleeping with all the wrong men, and struggling to find time to devote to her one passion, painting. Then she meets Eric, a white middle-aged man in a kind of open marriage. As if navigating the shifting landscape of sexual and racial politics as a young Black woman wasn't hard enough, Edie finds herself falling headfirst into Eric's home and family life. 
Lester was the winner of this year's Dylan Thomas Prize, shortlisted for the Women's Prize, and a Sunday Times bestseller. It's brutal, painfully funny, sharp, and tender, and I'm not the only one who thinks so. It was also one of Obama's favorite books of the year and named a Best Book of the Year by The Guardian, New York Times, Vanity Fair, New Statesman, and New Yorker, just to name a few. If you didn't get a chance to read it this year, Luster publishes in paperback on the 6th of January, so make sure you pick up a copy from your local independent bookshop. Okay, this is the perhaps the most exposing part of our (laughs) year in review show. We are going to look back at the reading resolutions that we made last year, and we're going to think about whether we actually accomplished them. You may or may not believe in resolutions. I'm skeptical about them, but I have actually found this segment quite helpful. So I'm consenting to it once again this year. Oh, I'm glad. This is part of your personal development. (laughs) (laughs) Always learning. Yeah. Well, why don't we start with you, Octavia? What was your first resolution? Oh my God. Well, I mean, this whole thing made me laugh so much because I only kept one of them, but this this was the one I kept, which was that I was going to keep a list of the books that I read. And I did do this, kind of. And it was chaotic and it was not chronological and it was certainly not in a way that was particularly sensible, but I did do it. And every time I realized I hadn't done it, I went back and filled in the five or six things that I had read. It's just really helpful to look back and see what you have given your time to and to see, I think, interesting, probably if I'd done it chronologically to see if there were any patterns in my reading, but I didn't. So I didn't get that pleasure. (laughs) What about you? Yeah, well, my my first resolution was the same as yours, which was to keep a list of my books. And I did as well. Well um, done. Yeah, I didn't always add books as soon as I read them. And I slightly lost track of the the book where I was keeping the list when we moved house. And so I had to add some furiously at the end of the year. But yeah, I am a, the proud owner of a list of all the books that I read last year and the month that I finished them as well. And it was so helpful for preparing the show, amongst other things. But just as you say, thinking back about what I read and how I read and what I chose to read, and I'm definitely going to try to keep this up for the rest of my life in this little book. So it is not a hard thing to do, but I'm very proud that I did this tiny thing. Can I just say, I think it's very characteristic of you that you also noted down the month when you read them, and mine has no chronology at all. None. It doesn't even have a marker from the year before. It's just a long list. It's just one long list. Yes, that is um, quite indicative of our different ways of being in the world, isn't it? Yeah. What What was your next resolution? My next one was to read more contemporary history books. I did not do this. I did not do this. And I don't think I'm going to do it anytime soon. It was a really hopeful idea, but it's just, I'm, it's not where I'm at. Fine. Great. I, I absolve you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what was yours? Well, the next one was kind of a resolution that I gave to myself, which was like something I was going to do anyway. So it was a little bit cheeky of me, but I said I wanted to read another ton of French Dublin Murder Squad book over Christmas, which I'd like already bought and was like on my bedside table and I was about to start <laughs> reading. But I did. I read it. It was The Likeness. It's the second book in the series. It was great. It was totally absorbing. It was very psychologically rich. It was a great thing to do as soon as the the break started, just stay in bed in the morning and read. And I loved it. It has a kind of silly conceit at the center, which I won't go into, but I, I would still recommend it. And I am planning to read the next book in the series, which is called Faithful Place, This Holiday Break. So yeah. So after your recommendation last year, I tried to listen to one on audiobook and I couldn't get on with it at all. And I, it might have been how it's being read. It might've been, I just didn't click with the voice of the reader. But I really wanted to love it and I didn't. Mm, that's well, that, that's an example of when our taste diverges, maybe. Um I would try reading it. I've never listened to the audiobooks, so I'm not sure what they're like. And sometimes it does take me a little bit of time to get into the books, but then I get really into them. That's what I'm looking for. I want to get hooked, you know? I yeah. that's what I love about that style of writing. So I, I had very high hopes, but yeah, I think it might be. I that's the thing with audiobooks. It, you have to click with the voice, I think. When I was listening last year to all of the Elena Ferrante books, my partner could not stand the voice of the actor who reads them. <laughs> and he would come in and just be like, oh, is that that disaffected woman being bored by what she's saying again? 
<laughs> it was so amazing. True. It's yeah. so true. So I will give Tana French another guy, I promise. Please do. She's so great. What was your next one? Mine was uh, to read books at the same time as friends because actually of reading Elena Ferrante and loving how much pleasure I got from texting you about them as everything was revealed. And this is also something I did not do apart from you, obviously, because you are my friend who I read at the same time as, which is like a beautiful, beautiful thing. But yeah, I just, I couldn't get it together with anyone else to do it. And probably I'm not going to do it with anyone else. I'm a very monogamous reader at the same time as person it turns out and you are my chosen partner (laughs) i'm so impressed by your fidelity thank you (laughs) i'm i'm very excited that you choose me oh yay so what was your choice Um, i thought you just know it's a great choice which is even better It is also a great choice. I'm That's a very true. good reading partner. I would, I mean, honestly, I can vouch for that. And so can the last nine and a half years of recording. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you are also a great reading partner. Oh, thank you. I wasn't fishing or anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, my last resolution was to read more translated books. And I'm really ashamed about this one because I, I totally failed. Um, I actually read fewer translated books in 2021 than I did in 2020. When I looked back, the translated books that I did read were really great. Um, one I recommended on the show was a novel called the ice palace by Tarje Vesas, um, originally written in Norwegian and, a book that was originally written in Italian called trust by Domenico Sarnone. But that that was kind of it. Um, and I need to do much better next year. So may I carry that over into my 2022 resolutions? Because I think I am going to have a more normal reading year next year. You may. I grant you. you that. I also wish that for you. My last one is also one I want to carry over into 2022, which was to read more books coming out of contemporary Greece, which I completely failed on. And um <laughs> So many listeners sent some great recommendations. And also now our editor, Daphne, works out of Athens. So we have even more of a Greek connection than we used to. And I feel like I know a lot about ancient Greek writing and stories. I've absorbed them in my life. I've read re-styled versions of them. I've read the Odyssey, all of this. And I just have no connection to contemporary Greek writing. And I feel the lack of it. So I didn't do it this year. I'm going to do it next year. Great. And I want you to hold me to it. Yeah, I want you to hold me to mine. Okay. It's a deal. Deal. (laughs) Speaking of which, what are your resolutions for the coming year? Oh, funny you should ask, Octavia. Well, (laughs) my first is, this kind of alludes to what I was talking about when I mentioned Sean Fay, is I would like to read more nonfiction, which it seems such a silly thing for me to say because listeners will know that as an agent, I mainly work on nonfiction. And so I do read a lot of nonfiction all the time, but I would say I either read it because I'm thinking about representing it, already representing it, or kind of dipping into things to get a sense of what's on the market. I'm kind of reading with my work brain on and not always finishing books and and kind of thinking more analytically about it. And I love nonfiction, but what I usually go to for comfort is is novels. And I really, really did that in 2021. But I would like to break out of that because there is so much amazing nonfiction around that I want to experience. So yeah, I I want to read nonfiction for pleasure and really seek it out and read some great histories and memoir and essays and and science and and get into it. So yeah, I I, I hope I'll be coming back next year and, and talking about all of the amazing nonfiction that I read. Sounds great. I read a lot of nonfiction and more and more the older I get. I used to never read it really when I was much younger. I mean, I read it for my studies, but I never read it for pleasure. Mm. And it's something that, yeah, I've grown into in a really massive way Um, and write myself now, which is also has a whole different way of relating to it. Totally. My first one is really just to read in less of a hurry. I have to read so much for work, which is a really wonderful thing and a big reason why I do the things I do for money and also for pleasure. But it also means I'm often reading to a deadline and I'm not the greatest at time management. I know we joke about this, but oh my God, every time I read a book, I'm astonished at how long it takes to read a hundred pages. It takes a long time. (laughs) It takes a long time to read a 300 page book, you know? And this year I kept finding myself wishing I could take 
certain things a lot more slowly and being really frustrated with myself that I was rushing through brilliant writing to a deadline. So I just, I want to read in less of a hurry. That's really like a, a prayer I have for myself. I hope that for you too. Um, so my next resolution is to listen to more audiobooks. Great one. I don't think this one will be tough because this is something that's really changed for me in 2021 is I finally got into audiobooks and I really want to continue the trend. I love them. And as you've said, you know, sometimes you just don't get on with the voice. And I think that was one of the reasons why it took me so long to finally get into it because I had a couple of bad experiences where I just couldn't hook into a book. But I now realize it was just because in a lot of the cases, I couldn't follow the narrator rather than not being able to follow the book as such. So it's a very different way of experiencing a book. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but I do think I remember a little bit less from the book than when I read on the page, but I remember different things and I enjoy it. And I love the added dimension of the reader's interpretation. And also that it's something that I can do while I'm walking or cooking or cleaning up. So yeah, I want to do that. And I also wanted to to take this opportunity to say that I'd love to hear from listeners about any audiobooks they particularly love, especially some older books that are classics or something like that, that are read particularly well, maybe by an actor that you really love. I'd be super open to that. Oh yeah, same here. What's your last resolution? My last one is to read more outside of the current publishing cycle and old books, but also like I was saying earlier on going back to bookshops and just browsing and pick up whatever seems interesting. Um, when I was in Paris recently, I went to a reading in a bookshop called After Eight, which was Lauren Elkin and a writer called Estelle Hoy reading from two of their brilliant latest works. And I was standing by a shelf for a few minutes before the whole thing started and I just pulled a book from it as you do, it was this beautiful pink book. And it was Eva Hess's diaries, which I stood there and I read for about five minutes. And then I put it back on the shelf and it was just, I don't know, it was so great. And the tactility of the object was partly what drew me to it. It was a funny shape. And it's just something that I've fallen out of the habit of doing because of the pandemic. And I miss so much that random pleasure of being drawn to something by an instinct that you can't necessarily describe, <laughs> just a chance encounter almost with a book, or like I said before, a recommendation from a bookseller. So my resolution is whatever the future year holds for us in the moments between anything where we can't have freedom of movement to really snatch those moments in bookshops, I think. Yeah, totally. And I can't say I endorse reading outside of the current publishing schedule all the time, but I'm okay with it. <laughs> there are some good books that were not published in the last year. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my last one very quickly is just to read before bed more. This is something I did all the time as a child and I love it. But during the pandemic, I just got into the terrible habit of watching sitcoms on my laptop before I go to bed. And I find it immensely comforting, ultimately sort of empty. And I love reading before bed. And I think it's one of the best times to read. And I'm just, I, I want to, you know, keep that laptop away and have a book by my bedside and really pick it up and read it and engage with it, even if it's for, you know, 10 minutes before I fall asleep. Uh, reading before bed was on my list too, actually, um, because I have similarly got into the bad habit of watching TV until I'm too tired to stand up <laughs> and then collapse into bed. And I actually hate it. I mean, I really love TV, but I hate how much TV I have started watching in the pandemic. You know, it's become a pacifier rather than something that I look to for like entertainment or kind of challenge. I mean, sometimes those things as well, but I think it's TV is an easy thing to fix on when stuff is really hard in a way. And I had got into the really good habit of reading in bed in the morning for a while as a way of stopping myself from waking and just doom scrolling on my phone, which was obviously getting me down. And I honestly, I can't tell you how good it was for my mental health just to replace that instinct to look at my phone straight away with picking up a book and just reading like three pages. It just really sets your mind in a, in a wonderful way. But of course, I struggled to keep it up and <laughs> I want to get back to it. So I think an, a resolution to try and start and end each day with just five pages or under even of reading each time would, would be wonderful. Yeah. I love that start the day idea. Oh my God, it's I, so nice. Yeah. I, for a while I was putting my phone in the other room and that was really good, but now it's just back and I doom scroll. So maybe it's pick up a book. 
Honestly, cup of tea and five pages of a book first thing while you're still in bed waking up before you even think about looking at the news or your emails or even the text messages you got in the night. Like it's really, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful practice. I just, why is it so hard to keep doing the things that are good for you? (laughs) I don't know. So for our last segment today, we are going to talk about the books that we can't wait to read in 2022. So I guess I'll start. I am so excited to read To Paradise by Hanya Yanagihara, which is coming out on the 11th of January. I had mixed feelings about her previous novel, A Little Life, but undisputably, that was an amazingly written novel, just one of the most compelling things I've ever read. And I love the sound of the ambition of this novel, which takes in three different versions of America and three different stories in 1893, 1993, and 2093. So I can't wait to read it. I'm also extremely here for that novel. Really very excited. My first one is Brown Girls by Daphne Palissy Andreades, which is billed as an ode to girlhood, written in a collective voice, which I love, (laughs) I love that kind of writing. Um, And it is, in the author's own words, a story about a group of women of colour, the daughters of immigrants growing up in Queens, New York. And it's going to be published in February by Fourth Estate. It looks so good. That sounds great. You do love a collective voice. (laughs) I do. When it's done well, it's so powerful. Yeah. So my next book that I'm looking forward to is The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois by Honoré Fanone Jeffers, which is coming out on the 20th of January. I feel like this is slightly cheating because it's already been published in the U.S. and it's had absolutely rave reviews, but it just sounds wonderful. It follows a young African-American woman, Ailey, as she traces her family roots in the Deep South across two centuries and kind of uncovers her family secrets, but takes in... American history and everything else under the sun. I can't wait to read it. It sounds so good. It really does. My next is Ocean Vuong's new book, Time is a Mother, which is described as an intimate searching for meaning after his mother's death with poems that will explore personal loss, the meaning of family, and the cost of being the product of an American war in America. I just love his writing. I love his perspective. I also follow him on Instagram where he is like a wonderful, wonderful presence. And he's been posting a bit about the writing of this book in the last year. And he posted a bit about his mother's death. And yeah, I just, I can't wait. If there's anyone in the world whose reflections on the loss of a parent and grief I'm interested in reading, it's definitely Ocean Vuong. Mm, That sounds great. So the next book I'm looking forward to is The Opposite of a Person by Lika Marsman, which is translated by Sophie Collins, and it's coming out in April 2022. And this is one of the translated books that I want to read. It's about a Dutch climatologist who has to leave her girlfriend behind when she accepts a post at a climate research institute in the Italian Alps. It sounds really good. It's short. It sounds kind of formally inventive and interesting. And I also want to read it because it's engaging with climate in the way that we've discussed that we want to do on the show too. I was about to say, you just reminded me of another resolution that I failed to live up to, (laughs) which was to move more out of the twilight knowing. So that sounds like a book I want to read as well. Good. (laughs) What's your next? My next one, I'm so excited about this book. So it's called The Twilight Zone by Chilean novelist Nona Fernandez, translated by Natasha Wimmer, who also translated Bolaño. So she's kind of, I don't know, Fernandez's work is like Bolaño's work, but the fact that Natasha Wimmer translated Bolaño makes me think she's going to be an excellent, excellent translator of Spanish. This novel is set in the 80s in Chile, in the middle of Pinochet's dictatorship. And it tells the story of a military officer who demands to tell a reporter how he became a torturer. And it sounds just extremely creative and interesting. Um, Apparently it uses chess games, letters and old sci-fi reruns to get into the darkest corners of both the man and the nation's history. Um, It's published in July by Daunt Books. I studied Spanish and I read 
some other Chilean writers and kind of learned a bit about the Pinochet regime and actually Chilean cinema when I was at university doing my BA. And it's a, a kind of time and a moment that I'm very interested in. So yeah, this sounds like it's going to be right on my street. I'd love to read it in the original Spanish, but my Spanish is no longer good enough. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so my last book that I'm looking forward to is a memoir called Lost and Found by Catherine Scholes, which is out in April. And I have just heard the most amazing things about this memoir. The basis of it is basically that Scholes met her partner that she would go on to marry about 18 months before her father died. And it's about family, grief, love, the way that life gives and takes and that, and, and we lose and find things as, as per the title. So I've always admired her writing and I I can't wait to read this. She's not a name I know, but that sounds great. Yeah, she's a she's a brilliant writer. I've read her stuff in the New Yorker basically and it's always so thoughtful and considered and kind of deeply felt. Oh, good. Sounds good. My last is another originally written in Spanish books. So it's called Wolfskin by Lara Moreno and translated by Katie Whittemore. So Moreno is a Spanish author whose name I've heard a lot, but I've never actually read. And I was just sent a proof of this and it sounds so good. It's about two adult sisters who end up back on the southern coast of Spain where they spent time as a child and basically they sort of have to confront their their past. So it builds itself as an intimate meditation on ambivalence and motherhood, eroticism and disappointment, family violence and failure. Very interesting. Lots of buzzwords there for me. <laughs> Published in January by Structo Press, which is also a press I've not heard of. So I'm, I'm excited to see what, what other things they, they're printing as well. Nice. Well, I predict 2022 is going to be a great year for reading. It sounds like it. It really does. It really does. I, and I'm hoping that we can maybe get some of these people on the show as well. Wouldn't that be good? That would be good. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Daphne Carnesis for editing and Eddie Knight for music. Literary Fiction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us by email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners. We'll be back in 2022 with a full show in January. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Happy Merry Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. Well, Hanukkah's happy over. New Year. <laughs> <laughs> happy, happy, happy. Happy. <laughs>